Hi, this is Dr. David Rosenthal, and I'm here to talk to you today about HIV prevention with both PEP and PrEP. This is an important topic that we need to understand in all of our offices because the fact is, is that this is something that every primary care provider and every provider in every specialty can provide to their patients. And it's important for us to be able to understand how we can make sure we're addressing HIV prevention in all of those that we see. I don't have any conflicts of interest, but I do receive grant funding from the New York State AIDS Institute. HRSA, as well as the Center for Disease Control. Our learning objectives today are to understand the role of PrEP and PEP for HIV prevention, to talk about the process of starting, offering, and monitoring a patient on PEP, and then explaining the current tests used in the diagnostic algorithm for HIV. So have a seat, Kermit. What I'm about to tell you might not come as a big shock. What you can see in this next slide is actually that the cases of HIV are decreasing overall, except in the 13 to 24 age cohort, where the number of cases are staying the same. And in addition, we're seeing individuals in this group in the men who have sex with men population that are actually staying the same as well, especially in the 13 to 24-year 20, age cohort. It's important when we take a look at youth in this group across New York State that we're understanding that the number of cases of individuals that are identified as having HIV is 7,500, but the number of, the actual, of actual diagnoses are only 4,200. So the concern is, is that a large number of people that, that have HIV are not aware of their diagnosis. And in fact, we know from the CDC that about one in four individuals who have HIV are among youth aged 13 to 24, and most of them do not know they're infected and they're not getting treated, and therefore they can pass off the virus to other individuals. We're also aware that bisexual men of all ages are also the most severely affected by HIV. And when we take a look, we know that one in eight people with HIV don't know they have it. And so it's very important that we're able to address this in the population and we're able to, to, to look at this. And it's essential that we provide an HIV-related test on all individuals above the age of 13 years of age in an inpatient and in an emergency department, as well as an outpatient ambulatory setting. So in New York State, do you need written consent for an HIV test any longer? No, written consent is not a requirement for HIV testing in New York State. All we do is we simply provide the seven explanations that we need to provide through oral, written, and electronic mechanisms, and then we orally notify the patient that we're going to be conducting an HIV-related test and document that the patient was advised this test was being performed. So these are the seven points of law, which you can actually put together in a poster, which can appear in your exam rooms. It can be on a flyer that you hand to the patient, um, but we no longer need to do a written consent. Often I try to normalize this experience for patients as much as possible and say, I'm gonna be checking a CBC, taking a look at your liver and kidney, test, doing a test for diabetes and your cholesterol, and I'm also gonna do an HIV test. If you normalize this as part of the routine healthcare experience, then you don't create barriers for care and you prevent people from not getting HIV testing as needed. A question which comes up is, do providers need to obtain parental consent for individuals between the age of 13 and 18 years old in New York State? And the answer is quite simply no. As long as providers can um, do testing on any individual, as long as they have a capacity to consent and they do not need to be above the age of a, of a minor. So let's talk a little about HIV testing. It's important that we take a look at the modern HIV testing algorithm because this changed and it's different than what you probably initially learned um, when you were in medical school or during, during your initial training. So the first step in the process is in yellow here. It's a fourth generation assay. And this fourth generation assay takes a look at both antigen and antibody to HIV. 
We know that you're going to see the presence of antigen first, and antibody responses will follow. And so we used to have a delay because we only looked at antibodies. So now this fourth generation assay, which you can order, it's called a AGAB assay or a fourth generation assay or a CMIA assay. It's pretty much the only one that's available for you to order. Is available um, automatic, and then it, and that does the proper test for you. If this test is positive, then we actually need to do a confirmation test. And in the past, we used to do confirmation tests that were Western blots, which were time consuming and expensive to run and took a long time delaying in order to create this. But what we're able to see right now is we're able to do a much faster test called a discriminatory assay, which discriminates between HIV-1 and HIV-2. And this assay really only takes about 20 minutes to run, and so therefore we can get results back typically within two hours. But, just like any other algorithm, if you have one test that's positive, the first test, and the second test that's negative, what do you do as a tiebreaker test? You run a third test. So we actually look at a nucleic acid-based assay, that's A3 here, and that actually um, sends off a qualitative RNA assay that's the tiebreaker test. It looks for the presence of actual virus and can help be the diagnostic test that we need to break the tie. These tests are automatically reflexed by the laboratory, so when you order the standard HIV test, if it's positive, it will automatically reflex through this protocol, and you don't have anything that you have to do. So let's talk about the difference between pre-exposure prophylaxis and post-exposure prophylaxis. Many of us are um, very familiar with post-exposure prophylaxis because we remember that from needle stick exposures and other experiences that we've had and we learned about all along. But what we're talking about is, is also a preventative methodology called pre-exposure prophylaxis. Pre-exposure prophylaxis takes individuals that have a higher risk of acquiring HIV and giving them medication before they acquire HIV to prevent transmission of the virus. This is different than post-exposure prophylaxis, where you would typically start patients on medication as soon as possible, typically two hours and up to 36 hours or 72 hours after they were exposed to HIV, and that would prevent them from getting HIV through this post-exposure prophylaxis. This is what we do in three different situations post-exposure prophylaxis, and we'll talk about those later on. But what we want to make sure we're addressing is pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is able to address the risk that exists prior to the initial exposure. So put simply, if you take a look, PrEP is a risk-based modality. If individuals have risk, then you're able to prevent transmission of HIV by putting someone on PrEP, whereas PEP, or post-exposure prophylaxis, is event-based. The clock starts from the moment that the patient was exposed to HIV, and then, the, then we need to make sure we're providing medications as quickly as possible. The corollary that I like to tie this to is if you're thinking about um, birth control. Birth control options typically are going to be risk-based or based off of behaviors, and so you're going to be able to do an oral contraceptive pill, an implantable um, birth control option, or some other choice. And this basically addresses things proactively, whereas if something happens and an oops occurs, then you use something like Plan B. Plan B is not typically Plan A. It's Plan B for a reason. And these Plan B or postcoital um, birth control options that exist are event-based, and the clock starts for them as well. So very much like these different choices, we need to pick the right prevention modality for the patient based off their actual behaviors. The first thing we're going to talk about is post-exposure prophylaxis, and this is something that most of us are pretty familiar with. There are three major situations where we would use post-exposure prophylaxis. The first would be those that have occupational exposure, as in a healthcare worker. 
The second situation would be in a situation of sexual assault. In the third situation, where we typically have not thought about using post-exposure prophylaxis as often as we should, is in non-occupational situations, when there's condom slippage, consensual sex, an episodic exposure to blood, or a bite that breaks the skin that involves blood, or a needle stick exposure in a non-healthcare setting, or unsafe needle sharing. All three of these situations are very important that we provide post-exposure prophylaxis to be able to prevent transmission of HIV from the time that things start. So we look for post-exposure prophylaxis and we understand that the risk is dependent on the type of, of exposure that you have. We're aware that anal receptive intercourse has the highest risk, whereas penile vaginal intercourse has a lower risk, insertive anal intercourse has even lower risk, and insertive penile vaginal intercourse has the lowest risk. Whereas receptive oral and uh, insertive oral intercourse has almost no risk. So it's important that we determine the risk factors that are there using the algorithm that we see in this, this flow chart. And in higher risk exposures, we need to make sure that we're providing post-exposure prophylaxis. Lower risk expo exposures like oral vaginal contact or oral anal contact, we're not necessarily doing it. We're looking at the risk factors. If the, um, one of the individuals has HIV, or there's other um, risk factors that we need to think about these options. But we need to make sure we're not using post-exposure prophylaxis for individuals that just have oral contacting or kissing or mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, human bites that are not involving blood, exposure to solid bore needles that do not have a hollow bore, um, or if there's other type of skin contact that occurs. So the first question that we need to ask is, is the patient presenting within 36 hours? And if the answer to that question is yes, then we should initiate the first dose of the non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis regimen as quickly as possible. We typically want to give a 28-day regimen and often we'll give tenofovir with imtricetabine, as shown in this slide, plus either raltegravir or dolutegravir. For most patients, I prefer using dolutegravir because it's a QD once a day um, medication, whereas the raltegravir is a BID medication, and so it makes it easier for patients to be able to use the once a day formulation. And then we obtain baseline testing, looking for HIV, pregnancy tests for women, gonorrhea, chlamydia, nucleic acid-based testing based off the site of exposure, and an RPR for syphilis. And then if it's possible, we can obtain the source testing for the individual if we're able to understand the source patient and we're able to figure out if they, they are HIV positive or not. Most importantly, we need to provide risk reduction counseling and make sure that the patient understands that they can have the mental health and substance abuse support that they need um, in order to help prevent future risk um, situations from occurring. When we talk about individuals for PrEP is a possibility, but the most important thing you need to do is, is to make sure there's follow-up after this visit. And one of the reasons that's so important is because we need to consider using PEP as a bridge to PrEP. I always tell my patients that the fact is, is that um, gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis don't come from the sky, they don't come from, no, from a, a site of no exposure. If the patient has recurrent infections with gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, or have recurrent episodes when they need to take post-exposure prophylaxis due to risk, then instead of using a reactive methodology, we need to discuss using a preventative methodology with our patients. Just like we would do to treat hypertension or diabetes, we don't wait until they're in DKA or until they're having a hypertensive crisis. We initiate a preventative methodology as well. So it's important that we talk about side effects and that we we're able to kind of create this bridge. I always say I'm not nearly as cute as this picture, this provider, but I think that we need to make sure that we can have an honest and, and truthful conversation with our patients about PrEP. So let's talk next about PrEP. PrEP is for HIV prevention. It's when an uninfected person that does not have HIV, that engages in some sort of risk behavior, 
takes one pill once a day that prevents them from being infected with HIV. Only individuals who are HIV negative should use PrEP because an HIV test is required before we start PrEP and then every three months once we start taking PrEP. But the fact is, is that this study that was done in 2015 said that very few people knew about PrEP. And one in three primary care doctors or nurses haven't heard about PrEP. Hopefully since December of 2015, this has changed. I think it's important that not only people that have knowledge or experience with HIV are able to prescribe PrEP, but also every primary care provider that are seeing the patients in any situation. Because PrEP is very easy to give to individuals, and it's not something that requires additional training or additional resources. It's actually much easier to administer than antihypertensive or antidiabetes medications. When we're looking at individuals that should receive PrEP, we need to take a look at the risk stratification. So if we're talking about men who have sex with men, we know that about one in four individuals need to be on PrEP. We're taking a look at people that are intravenous drug users, about one in five of them need to be on PrEP based off of a 2015 study. But what's really important is, is we need to talk about the heterosexual female population because if we look at individuals who have sex with two or more partners of the opposite sex um, and they have either sex with an HIV-infected partner or condomless sex in the past four weeks and sex with a high-risk partner in the past 12 months, it's important to know that these individuals that are heterosexual females should also be on PrEP. So while the percentage of young men who have sex with men is higher, of people that should be on PrEP than heterosexual females, the number of individuals is very much the same. And so it's important that we identify both those high-risk heterosexual females as well as other populations like young men who have sex with men, and we're able to provide them with the correct preventative modalities. When we're looking at the CDC guidelines about which populations are recommended for patients that are in PrEP, we're talking largely about men who have sex with men, heterosexual, um, heterosexually active men and women, and injection drug users. And it's important that we talk about the risk um, factors that are being used as, talk, as shown in this slide. And it's important also to remember that PrEP can only be prescribed by a healthcare provider and it must be taken as directed to work. The early studies showed very little efficacy, but this is because there are non-therapeutic concentrations in the medication. So encouraging your patients to take the medication and to make sure they're adherent with the regimen is, essentially, is essential to providing care. At this time, there's only one medication which is currently available by the FDA to provide PrEP. It's using both imtricetabine and tenofovir to be a, um, to have two non-nucleus, to have two nucleoside reverse, reverse transcriptase inhibitors to stop the transmission of HIV by preventing reverse transcription. When we're looking at adverse effects, it's important that we're also able to address adverse effects in individuals that are uninfected with HIV. And the two, the two major side effects that we address are both renal insufficiency and bone density. Thankfully, both of these are almost completely reversible if we're able to stop, if we're able to stop the medication. But it's important that we're able to obtain baseline levels of BUN creatinine and urine um, analysis, as well as a vitamin D level and making sure we're able to assess bone density as well. Um, in addition, it's important to realize that the baseline tests that you need to get are including those things that you would typically get for individuals that are exposed to STIs. So you'll test gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis. You'll take a look at a CBC and a CMP. And then also you'll be able to test individuals to make sure that they don't have any other um, symptoms like for things like HIV. You then you see the patient again after one month and you're able to retest them for, to make sure their bione and creatinine are still, are still normal and do a UA. And then you're also able to take a look at a HIV test. After three months, you'll see the patient again and then you'll see the patient every three months after that. And during those same visits, you're able to again to repeat the BUN and creatinine and take a look at their laboratory studies to make sure they don't have a new STI. 
All of this together, along with talking about safer sex with our patients, can make a dramatic impact in decreasing risk of transmission of HIV using post-exposure prophylaxis. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me at the information shown here.